The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. I'm sorry to say this is not the promised third episode of the Collections miniseries. Even with the month between episodes right now, much of my attention at the museum has been spent working alongside a staff of just amazing educators to roll out distance learning opportunities to help keep kids and adults engaged and their brains sharp as schools and libraries around the country have been closed down. However, I think today's episode will be pretty dang cool. What you're going to hear is the audio from a game of trivia that I co-hosted as part of these public programming initiatives. Specifically, you're going to hear a speed round and an interview with retired NASA astronaut Mike Mullane, whose three space shuttle missions are chock full of stories. First, you'll hear some audience Q&A from the people who were there live with us playing trivia over the internet. Then, through the magic of editing, you'll time warp ahead a little bit to the end of the speed round, where the audience answered some trivia questions relating to the space shuttle, while Mike provided some deeper insight into the answers. It was a pretty neat conversation, and I am excited to share it here. It's a little on the longer side, but I've also been told by listeners that right now you have some more time to listen to podcasts and would appreciate the lengthier recent episodes of The Flight Deck, so you get your wish. And uh, also you can see how you do with the trivia, see if you get the answers to the questions we asked. This was a recording of a webcast, so the audio quality is diminished from our normal standards, but it's still very audible, just did want to give you a heads up about that. And with that, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everybody. Looks like everyone is back. So we're going to get started with the second half of our program here. To start off, we have a speed round. Uh, Before that, we're going to have a little bit of a chat here with retired NASA astronaut Mike Mullane, whose career has spanned all sorts of things, not just... uh, flying on the space shuttle, about reconnaissance missions uh, in Vietnam, flying the space shuttle, also a mountain climber, a very prolific speaker. A quick search on YouTube will find a lot of appearances and an excellent writer too. Well, we're going to have a chance for some audience questions here. So folks in the audience, if you have questions for our guest, you can go ahead and put them in the chat box. Uh, in the meantime, though, just to, to get things started, I read your book, Riding Rockets, Uh, which is your story. And one thing that struck me, even in the, well, the opening chapter struck me, but uh, your your discussion of your childhood, it really reminds me that there there are kids who want to be astronauts, and then there are kids who are going to be astronauts. Well, I was a child of the space race. I was born at the right time uh, to be totally involved in space at a very young age. I was 12 years old when Sputnik was launched. But even before that, I had an intense interest in uh, rocketry. Uh, 
you know, that predates uh, uh, the, the shuttle. I mean, uh, I, first of all, <laughs> all of the Hollywood movies out there that had the V2s landing vertically on the moon and, and uh, all those movies, I was, I was into those big time. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to come of age when the, the real, uh, uh, the, the heyday of the space race was, uh, was, was gripping everybody. You know, and uh, I was growing up in the right place too, Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I could indulge my interest in homemade rocketry out in the vast desert that bordered the city. And it was great to be able to participate too in the uh, early space program and the dark skies that Albuquerque had at the time. I was, my home was on the border of Albuquerque, so it was very easy to go out in the desert and look up and see these early satellites twinkling through the twilight. So a lot of things there that came together that uh, put me on a path very early toward uh, the astronaut dream. And I was fortunate enough to ultimately have that, that realized. Now, you were uh, an astronaut during the era of Challenger. Can you talk a little bit about the immediate aftermath and your recollections of, of that time and then becoming again a, shat- a shuttle astronaut after Challenger and, and going back up into space? Well, Challenger, I'm sure everybody can appreciate it, was ripped the heart out of everybody there at NASA and, and frankly, the nation. And uh, I didn't see it live. I was in training at Los Alamos uh, Labs in New Mexico for a payload, a secret military payload that was going to be going up on the first flight out of Vandenberg. I was on on that mission. And uh, of course, that never happened. They canceled the Vandenberg flights after Challenger. But it was only probably oh, 10 minutes or so after the tragedy, maybe even longer before uh, somebody came in and, and told us about it. There were no TVs uh, in these facilities. They were obviously secret facilities. So it took a while for us to hear it. And uh, as soon as uh, we heard and they, we exited the building and got to a TV and saw the replays of it, we knew immediately the crew was lost. Of course, we had no idea what the cause was, um, but we... We got in our jets, our T-38 jets uh, that afternoon and flew back to Houston. Uh, obviously grief-stricken, all of us were. Uh, we obviously recovered from uh, the Challenger tragedy, uh, went back and flew my second mission, which was the second mission after after Challenger, a DOD military mission, STS-27. And I forgot, <laughs> did that cover? You asked a couple questions there, Sean. Did I get them all? Yeah, I think you did. And we've had, uh, in the meanwhile, we've had a bunch of questions come in from the audience here. So Julie noticed in the background that that lovely quilt it looks like back there and was curious what your favorite mission patch is. <laughs> well, of course, my own missions are my favorite. Actually, that quilt includes the missions. Uh, I, I think I have this right. My wife did that. Uh, and it's the patches of uh, the missions that were completed while I was an astronaut. And I'll move over here and you can see my my face in the middle there. <laughs> this is part of my I love me room. Every uh, air crew has an <laughs> I love me room. So uh, you'd find the same thing in probably every, every air crew and every, certainly every astronaut's office uh, uh, memorabilia like this that would highlight their uh, missions. But the, if you ask me what my favorite mission was, I would have to say it was the uh, SDS-27 because I got to use the robot arm and and release a satellite. I can't talk about the satellite. It was a military satellite, but uh, the challenge of doing that was uh, very rewarding. So uh, I'd have to say SDS-27 is the patch that I like. 
We have another question, this one from Stephanie, asking if you were ever invited to be part of Space Hipsters. I have to admit my ignorance. Uh, I'm not sure what that is. Well, actually, my son is a member of that. I keep meaning to join it, but no, I, I'm not on it right now, but I, I really need to, to get on it. Uh, my son, son has been a longtime member, and he passes on information to me, but uh, I, I've got that on my to-do list, so I'll uh, jump on that sometime. Uh, kind of leading out of what you just mentioned, someone did want to ask. They said, what can you tell us about your, your secret USAF space shuttle mission? That was from Pat Fitzpatrick. Oh, <laughs> oh, Fitz knows the answer to this. <laughs> I can't say anything about them. Uh, <laughs> you know, obviously, they're, they're still classified. And until they were, de you know, if they're ever declass declassified, uh, then I guess we could talk about it. But right now, they're still classified, so I can't say anything about it. Stephanie asked if you've ever been to Space Fest in Arizona. I have a long, uh, oh, probably, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago I was there. And I had it to go this year uh, there in Tucson, but unfortunately, the COVID virus took care of that. Right. Lisa asked, were you flying with Livingston Holder? Fly with uh, Livingston? Negative. In fact, uh, I don't even know him. I suspect he's a, a, a current astronaut or, or one that uh, is relatively recent. You have to remember, folks, I left NASA in 1990. <laughs> it's a long time, 30 years. So there are people now that probably were in, well, certainly were in grade school that are now flying in space. So uh, obviously we did not overlap. So no, I, I do, do not know that gentleman. Here's a question from the bossies. Said that their kids are very interested in space and food. They did some Googling and read that bread is not allowed in space because of the crumbs. Normally tortillas are allowed. Is that true? Well, I don't know about allowed. When I was at NASA, they experimented with uh, various sandwich type of spreads and sandwich material, uh, you know, peanut butter, jelly, things like that. Uh, the bread did crumble too easy. It was, uh, it turned out that tortillas is what they started flying. I don't know. I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised now that they're able to take up bread, uh, but I'm not sure. On the International Space Station, I, I'm not sure what they have, but uh, when I was flying on the shuttle, it was tortillas. What were some of the memorable meals from your time on the shuttle? Well, the best meal you can possibly have in orbit is to be floating at the window, looking at the beautiful Earth, and eating butter cookies and peanut M&Ms. Doesn't get any better than that. Uh, junk food, <laughs> that's the best meal. Now I was only up there for, uh, my longest mission was six days. And the food we had, the dehydrated food we had, eh, it was okay for that. But uh, I'm sure we'd get old after <laughs> being months in space. Uh, but we did carry candy and and uh, butter cookies and, and uh, things like that. So, and fruit cocktail in a can some of those store-bought cans, things like that. Those were always really good. But Chris, and, uh, what they need to do, though, is come up with dehydrated pizza and dehydrated beer. That would make a, that'd make a space flight a lot better. So we have a question uh, from, a, from a more technical side here. So of all the airframes, this is from Chris, asks, of all the airframes you've piloted, which one took the most stick-and-rudder skill to fly well? Well, I'm going to have to have to uh, tell you that I was not an Air Force fighter pilot. I was a backseater in Phantom Jets. So if you saw Top Gun, I was a goose flying in Maverick's backseat. 
So I would not be qualified to talk about uh, which is the easiest or requires the most stick and rudder time. I mean, I was certainly, I flew a lot from the backseat of Phantom. We had a full set of controls back there. I, I was a, I, I think I was a dynamite instrument pilot because the visibility from that back seat isn't real good. And I got pretty, pretty good with instruments, but uh, yeah, you know, I'm not the person to, to answer that question. Uh, it does lead into what I thought was an interesting, another good reminder from your book. You know, with a lot of people growing up, they think if you're going to be in the Air Force, you have to be a pilot. But in reality, uh, even just to get a plane off the ground, there's a lot of people involved in that. Can you talk a little bit about the team that makes uh, an aircraft fly or a spacecraft oh, fly? Yeah, I mean, uh, the pilot is sitting there in that cockpit, but behind that pilot are all the maintainers that put it together, the refueling people, the armaments people. Uh, the, I mean, it's a huge team. I'll bet, I don't know, but I'll bet for launching one airplane, armed airplane, uh, you could probably count a hundred people that somehow had a hand in doing that over the over the days or or weeks, uh, uh, getting fuel loaded, uh, while getting it to the base. All the things that the infrastructure, uh, you know, consumes a huge uh, manpower to get a get a plane into into the air. And you don't have to to be in the military, Navy, Marines, uh, Air Force. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of jobs besides pilot. In fact. The pilots in any of those services are very rare, and they're getting rare because of uh, going to drones now. Uh, but uh, you could be part of that, uh, in, in you know, be part of the military without being a pilot. Uh, we have time for one more question before we do the quick speed round. We may have time for one or two afterwards. Uh, so I'm going to uh, do this one from Stephanie asking if you have any good stories of working with Hoot Gibson or Judy Resnick. <laughs> I got a lot of those. You need to read my book, Riding Rockets. I document them there. Uh, yeah. a, lot, a lot of them probably aren't suitable for this uh, for this G-rated uh, telecon right here. <laughs> but uh, no, I had a great time. I had a great time flying with Judy Resnick. She's a wonderful lady. Of course, uh, for those who don't know, she was killed on Challenger. But her and I flew our rookie flight, uh, the 12th shuttle mission, STS-41D. We flew that together. Uh, I guess that was about 17 months before she was killed on Challenger. But she was a, a wonderful lady, brilliant engineer, electrical engineer. And, uh, you know, we, we had a great, great time. And she was fun to tease, and she would throw it back at us men. Um, and, uh, you know, just just wonderful memories of her. And, of course, Hoot Gibson is, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a good reason he's called Hoot. Uh, well, actually, the Hoot Gibson comes from an old cowboy movie back in the, oh gosh, back in the 20s, probably, where there was a cowboy named Hoot Gibson. And so anybody with last name Gibson got a handle called Hoot. But he is a hoot when it comes to laughing, too. You know, definitely. But you'd have to read my stories in Riding Rockets. Uh, most of them I don't think would be suitable to tell on this, on this uh, telecom. Yeah, and before we move on to the the questions here, which are based on riding rockets, you have riding rockets, which does definitely have uh, parental guidance advised. Uh, <laughs> but you have another book, "Do Your Ears Pop in Space," that is probably a pretty good one for the general audience. It is. Uh, yeah, that uh, the "Do Your Ears Pop in Space" it answers 500 questions that I've been asked as an astronaut. And probably every astronaut's been asked the same questions, but I answer those questions in a very easy to understand way. Some of them are you might you might think are really uh, very 
technical. The questions uh, are technical, and you might think it would require a rocket scientist to understand the answer, but I put it in terms that make it very easy for people to uh, to follow. So I'd highly write, and that is G-rated. I would, as uh, Sean said, riding rockets, a parent would want to read that first before they decided when it's age appropriate for their child. All right. Well, speaking of riding rockets, we have a speed round, and this is six questions that are based off of uh, Mike's book, Riding Rockets, and then we're going to go through them one after the other really quickly, um, and then after that, go over the answers briefly with Mike and see if he has anything else he wants to add to them uh, before we say goodbye to him. So starting off with one. When does Rocket experience an issue before takeoff? What did first American in space, Alan Shepard, implore Mission Control to do? And the answer is light this candle. Go ahead. I would have gotten that. I would have gotten that one. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> what are your memories of kind of that early time? Uh, you watched the space race pretty closely. I did. My parents were very, very supportive. This was back in the, obviously in the 60s when they first started launching Alan Shepard and Grissom and and, um, and Glenn, uh, those early missions. And my parents were all in on this. So they would keep me home from school, uh, knowing my passion for it. So uh, I had great, great supportive parents and really watched all of those early, early missions. Is a again a thrilling, thrilling time. People can't really appreciate it. I don't believe in in this day and age uh, what it was like back then. The, the whole nation was just so wrapped up in in every one of those missions. All right. The next question in our speed round was, what feature of the Apollo spacecraft was omitted from the design of the space shuttle? And the answer was the in-flight escape system. That seems like something you'd want. Well. Uh, I talk about that in the in the book, and but if you really believed that this was a, a safe as an airplane, and that was NASA's belief when they designed this with the redundancy and the testing that they were going to do and the modeling they were going to do, uh, they were confident it would be as safe as an airplane. And obviously, you don't put a escape system on a seven four seven. So the reasoning was was if you're rooted in a belief that it's an airplane, then Clearly, you wouldn't need an in-flight escape system. Uh, I do know that most astronauts in my group were uncomfortable with that fact that we flew without an escape system because we had, certainly the military people, we'd spent a life on ejection seats and always in the back of our minds, maybe it's a false hope, but we in air, aviation, you always think you have a chance to get out if something really, really bad happens. But on the space shuttle, that option was not available. And by the way, after Challenger, they added uh, a primitive escape system. It was all they could do. They looked at providing ejection seats and a pod, things like that, but there's no way you can retrofit a, a, a space vehicle like that. That has to be designed in at the very beginning. So in the end, they gave us a slide pole that we could slide out of the cockpit uh, to get underneath the wing, since the hatch is far forward on the left side, uh, slide down this pole uh, to get under the wing bail out. But the restrictions on using that were, were very, very tight. You had to be below 50,000 feet subsonic velocity in, in a level controlled flight. And as people would say, well, why would you be bailing out? It sounds like ops nominal. Nominal. Uh, nominal. Um, but uh, there's a possibility the the one scenario that certainly would make that usable is where for whatever reason, the vehicle is flying fine, but there's not a runway underneath you. So then 
the crew had been able to use that to bail out. The vehicle's fine, just whatever guidance or navigation system failed and you find yourself with no runway, that system would have saved saved the crew in all likelihood. And if people want to see on-the-ground escape, uh, next time when the Museum of Flight is back open, come check out our full fuselage trainer, which astronauts you probably used, actually, to train on. And you can still see the scuff marks on the side from the egress yeah. training. Yeah, they had. They also put that slide pole in a swimming pool with a mock-up of the hatch so we could actually you know, roll out of the hatch and, and uh, slide that pole, slide on that pole down into the water, um, uh, get some training doing it. So that's one thing about NASA. They they really are world-class. I mean, absolute world-class in training. Uh, if it can be simulated, they simulate it. We even had a toilet simulator. You can read about that in riding rockets, but it is just amazing how thorough that team is in preparing you for every possibility of what you might see on a flight. I, I have the greatest admiration for the for the trainers, for the sim soups and all those people in there that, that prepared us. They're, they truly are world class. Question three. You referred to the dangerous allure of space uh, by comparing it to what mythological creature? The answer was the siren. I think in, well, I know it's somewhere in that in the book, I, I talk about, you know, the, the passion that astronauts hold for space flight. For most of us, it is a life dream come true. And in that regard, it's this, we know there's very big risks associated with this business, but it's like, uh, like those, uh, sailors of old, uh, you, you hear in the myth mythology, they heard the, the siren call of the, what I get, mermaid or siren, whatever you want to call her on the rocks that would lure the sailors to crash into the rock. Uh, so that's where that, that analogy came from in my writing is that it, it's something that, that is so uh, indefinable. You really can't explain it, but it's a passion that you were born with that you really feel like you're not complete unless you can make this mission. Uh, and then right after that mission, you're saying, I want to make another one too. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's where I drew the the uh, anomaly there to the Greek sirens. I'm not sure I'm saying that right. Siren, siren. You know, anyway. I don't think any ancient Greeks are going to complain one way or the other, so <laughs> <laughs> probably pretty safe. All right. Uh, the next question was uh, question four. And I'm sorry, if, if Michael and Emily, if you wanted to do your questions, my, my apologies for just jumping on there. Sean, you're doing great. <laughs> All right. Well, then I'll keep I'll keep plugging along. Uh, then the fourth question was, uh, which city did they travel to to train on the Boeing-built inertial upper stage rocket? And that city was Seattle, right here. Do you remember anything from that trip to Seattle? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I trained thoroughly on the IUS, uh, but <laughs> I didn't didn't get to fly it. That was going to be our payload uh, for our first mission there on Discovery. But unfortunately, uh, when they uh, they launched one, uh, I guess on an unmanned rocket, I'm not sure, but they had a problem with uh, the first one that was put up there had a steering problem. And that ended up, uh, that had to go into redesign. So there was a big shuffle around and, and uh, we ended up with a different payload. Uh, but yeah, I trained thoroughly on it. It, it. For those of you who are unfamiliar with it, it was a, 
they call it an inertial upper stage. Uh, you might have seen in the shuttle, we launched a lot of these spinning satellites. So you'd see them spinning in the in the payload bay and they'd pop out to take to take satellite. Uh, to, they had a booster rocket, a satellite on top, and that was to, to stabilize them when the solid motor fired, it would take them up to the uh, geosynchronous altitudes. Whereas the an inertial upper stage, it's steerable. They don't spin it. It's it has a nozzle that can can uh, gimbal, and so that way it's able to steer itself in into uh, the proper orbit. It's a much bigger bigger rocket than some of those small ones that you saw that were spinning out. And it was laid horizontally in the cargo bay, as you might imagine. And there was a, what they call a tilt table. It would tilt up, I think, about 45 degrees, and you would release it, and some springs would push it out. Then the shuttle would move away, and about a half or half orbit later, uh, the rocket would fire and take whatever its payload was up to these geosynchronous altitudes, which is 22,000 and some change above the Earth's equator. The shuttle has never been above 400 miles, never got above 400 miles. So obviously you're not going to be putting something out of the cargo bay and just leaving it in, in geosynchronous orbit. Uh, it needs a booster rocket. And that's what this IUS was and some of the other uh, satellites that we carried, they had their booster rocket to get them out of low Earth orbit up to geosynchronous altitude. If people want to see uh, a mock-up of that, are the full fuselage trainer that we have, it simulates releasing a Boeing full fuselage or Boeing initial. Again, so many fuselage things, I don't even know. <laughs> uh, next question was the STS-41D crew gave each other nicknames derived from one cl what classic story? And that story was Tarzan. Ooh, a lot of you said the Odyssey. Interesting. So that story was Tarzan. <laughs> it's Tarzan. Now, this is a long background, I think, to to that answer. But uh, I, myself and Steve Hawley, in 1980, uh, we were new astronauts. And NASA sent, uh, because it had been such a long time since the Apollo program ended, and now we're getting ready to fly astronauts on the shuttle, they were worried about people involved in manned spaceflight because they hadn't really had men up there or, or humans, men and women with the shuttle. And so they wanted to make them aware of, hey, we're going to be putting people on these rockets now. So you really got to make sure you do your job right. And so one of the things they wanted was astronauts traveling around the world to visit these tracking sites, these NASA tracking sites and and telling them how important their job was. Uh, you know, just to refresh the fact that now we got people in it. You got to really buckle down and, and uh, make sure you don't miss anything. So Steve Hawley and I ended up on the Indian Ocean tracking station uh, duty <laughs> to talk to these people, which is, let me tell you, that was that was like dying going to heaven, that beautiful island out there in the Indian Ocean, about <laughs> a thousand, thousand miles off the equator or so from Kenya, Africa, pretty close to the equator. I think it's a couple degrees below the equator. But at any rate, it's a tropical paradise. And at any rate, long story here, Holly and I are walking down the beach. And who do we run into but Bo Derek? Now, most of you are young. You don't have a clue who Bo Derek is. But she was an A-list actress who had just finished this probably a B-rated movie called Tarzan, where she was uh, uh, Jane, I guess it was. And at any rate, uh, we got back and told this story around the astronaut office that we got to meet and have pictures taken with Bo Derek. And so Judy Resnick, who was on the flight, started calling me Tarzan. And I, 
I think I'm the one that coined Holly as Cheetah. And then, uh, uh, well, actually, we weren't all named after the Tarzan movie because the nickname for uh, Mike Coates was uh, Superman because he, my daughter, thought he looked a lot like Christopher Reeve, and he did, or he does. And uh, so he got Superman handle, and and then uh, Hank was the zookeeper because there he kept saying, what a zoo this crew is. So that's how all those handles got, got appointed there. But Tarzan came about from us meeting uh, Bo Derrick. All right, last question from this speed round. What temperature are the ceramic tiles of the space shuttle subjected to during re-entry? And the answer was 2,000 degrees. Now, this question came from uh, your discussion of a mission that didn't go nearly as planned. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, that was my second mission. Again, the second mission after Challenger STS-27. And during launch, the tip of the right side solid rocket booster, there's a, it's a ceramic ablative material, uh, failed structurally and shotgunned our heat shield during during ascent. Now, we didn't see that. We didn't hear anything, but uh, we were in orbit about a day, I guess, or so before mission control called. And I, I don't remember the exact words, but it was sort of like along the lines of, did you guys see anything whiz by the window during the launch? <laughs> those are those are calls you do not like to get when you're up in orbit. And they explained what they saw in the cameras that uh, that we had taken a hit from this debris. And they instructed me to use the robot arm, uh, which has a camera on the end of it. The tip of the solid uh, tip of the of the robot arm has a uh, camera. And they sent me the instructions for bending this robot arm over crazy angle over the nose there to, to look at the damage that we might have sustained. And it was significant. Uh, in fact, one tile in a hot temperature area for reentry, which was probably around the 2000 degree point, was completely missing. It was just gone. It was a cavity in the heat shield there, which obviously is cause for worry on reentry. Uh, we worried about the, you know, the possibility that this hypersonic wind, that these things are going to start like a, like shingles off a roof and a, hurricane, you know, they're just going to start rippling off and the whole belly is going to be exposed to the heat of reentry. But the engineers assured us that wasn't going to happen. And they were right. Uh, it was just that one cavity. But there were, it, I think at the end, it was close to 800 heat tiles that were so severely damaged that they uh, they had to be uh, replaced. So it was, uh, it was a close call on that. Uh, I say close because had it hit the carbon panels on the leading edges of the wing, or the nose, those certainly would have been penetrated and that would have been fatal on reentry. And that is what happened on Columbia's reentry. The, the ceramic tiles are, are robust in the sense they can take some kinetic damage and still hold together. Whereas that carbon panel, the gray, if you look at a shuttle, the nose cap is gray and the leading edge of the wing are gray, that's uh, carbon panels that see the hottest temperatures on reentry up about 3000 degrees. Those are very brittle. And something like that debris that hit our, our tiles, had they punctured a hole in that uh, carbon, either the nose or the wing carbon panels, that, that would have been the end of us there. Uh, you know, there's no way to survive with 3000 degree heat entering, entering into an aluminum vehicle that melts at a thousand degrees. And sadly, that's what happened on Columbia's mission. It wasn't debris off the solid rocket boosters though it was uh, the insulation on the on the gas tank a piece of that weighing about i think a pound and a half 
uh, ripped off and flew back and hit the left leading edge wing of Columbia and punched uh, what they estimate to be, I think, a nine inch diameter hole in, the, in that leading edge wing. And that, that um, tragically doomed that crew. Uh, very, very tragic. Yeah. Part of the siren call. Yeah. Dangerous. But, uh, but you know, you know, the goal. thing, the thing, uh, I think I'm on firm ground in saying this. So somebody can do their research on it. But uh, on Columbia, I wasn't at NASA when Columbia was lost. But uh, had they had a robot arm, they did not. That has a camera on the end of it. Uh, again, ground knew they took a hit. And if they had had a robot camera, uh, a robot arm, they would have easily been able to see that the damage included a puncture uh, to the left leading edge wing. And as I understand, and again, somebody more space uh, history uh, savvy than I am, what I heard is that uh, they could have uh, uh, been saved by a shuttle that happened to be on the launch pad and was very close to launching. And they could have hurried up and got that ready to go. They could have flown that shuttle up and then using spacewalks could have rescued the Apollo, the uh, Columbia crew and abandoned Columbia in orbit, basically. Uh, I believe that, that I believe that's true. That's the story I heard at any rate about the timeline on that. In fact, I heard that uh, that had they made the decision within a week after the launch, they still would have been able to to rally a, a try at getting them with another with another shuttle. But again, somebody needs to really delve into that. Make sure I'm not saying something wrong. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll, we'll take a look at the scores here as we say goodbye. Uh, if people want to uh, hear more of Mike's stories, he's going to be back at the museum online on Tuesday, June 9th for a longer presentation called The Astronaut Experience. We just put the information in chat so you can pre-register for that. Uh, thank you for being so generous with your time both today and uh in a couple of weeks and of course you can check out his books uh the links are in the chat there also i believe they're you can get them all autographed uh if you buy them through that site there too right yeah they if they order from me uh they can order straight you know from my website uh autograph books but if you buy a book somewhere else or somebody gives you one and you want to get an autograph there's a button on my website that says autograph seekers or autographs just click on that to, uh, see how you could get that to me for an autograph. All right. Well, again, thank you so much. People in the chat are also thanking you. Um, I'm glad to. Yeah. And enjoy the rest of your day. And for everybody else, we're going to wrap up here with round two in just a couple of seconds. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. If you're listening to this episode when it releases, then you still have time to attend Mike Mullane's public program titled The Astronaut Experience that was referenced towards the end of the discussion. You can find details about that program in the show notes. You'll also find a link in the show notes to Mike's website, so if any of his books sounded interesting to you, you can check those out there. In addition, if you have a student in your life, a kid, a grandkid, neighbor, niece, nephew, whatever, we have virtual programs at the museum that we are so incredibly proud of and excited to get off the ground this summer. We have educational opportunities for kids going into kindergarten through 12th grade, ranging from 
basic concepts like shapes and weight and balance to advanced classes that prepare high school age learners for FAA flight tests. You can head to the show notes for some more details. I also wanted to say that I appreciate the financial support listeners have continued to grant the Museum of Flight through the giving link at museumofflight.org slash podcast. Your funds make these education programs possible. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from to stay up to date with the recent episodes as soon as they come out. And if all goes well, the next episode in a few weeks will be the continuation of our Connections miniseries, where we've been looking at the smallest artifact, the biggest artifact, the youngest artifact, and the oldest artifact in the Museum of Flight's collection. You can hear the episodes on the smallest and biggest artifacts in the back catalog here on the podcast feed. And coming soon, get ready to learn about our youngest artifact and the story around it. You can contact the show at podcast at museumofflight.org. And until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>